it's David, and you're listening to the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast. As promised, I'm really happy to announce some of our future guests at Season 2, which starts two weeks from today. Really excited to have Maestro Pepe Romero for our first episode. Following that, I've got a conversation with the flamenco guitarist Adam Del Monte on his newly composed opera, and then a conversation with Mark Teicholz, a GFA winner and professor at the San Francisco Conservatory. Then we've got Thomas Vilteau, the French guitarist who's got many popular videos on tone bass. He's also a GFA winner, and he's a newly appointed faculty member at the Peabody Institute in Baltimore. We've got Nicholas Galusis following that. Um, he founded the classical guitar program at the Eastman School in Rochester, which is where Tomat got his doctorate recently. And I've also got Mark Gergic, a young Slovenian guitarist, really killer player, uh, very involved in new music, especially microtonal. Still working on logistics and the details for other artists, but I'll keep you posted as always. Today I've got Elliot Fisk on the show, a renowned musician infamous for being the first guitarist to record and perform Paganini's 24 Caprices, originally for the violin. He's also put out many transcriptions, and he's worked closely with many great modern composers. So let's go ahead and jump right into things. This is the beloved 24th Caprice of Paganini. Thank you. 
it's um it's sad there is this obsession with making everything as perfect as possible in kind of all fields of anything um and music in particular the arts is just awful to try to do that and in ways you know i it's really upsetting to see the thing of a classical guitar competition it's, well how do you quantitize something like that well i think like, the whole competition illness has infected all the instruments and, and it's a good reason for the lack of audience uh, interest in classical music because um you know there's there's a certain sort of technical perfection that's expected and that technical perfection is 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 great in the first minute the second minute up to five minutes after five or six or seven minutes you're you're done with it you don't want to hear it anymore you know and uh, i think i'm encouraged however because i think that the the people who are now in their teens and 20s have got have got tired of that uh increasingly and i think that they are going to bring back, bring the pendulum swinging back in the direction of individuality and, and a true romantic spirit, you know, which I think, uh, you know, which I think underlies uh, all artistic aspirations. So I'm, I'm actually hopeful because I think, I think that you know, my generation was the generation, in the guitar world, my generation was the generation that really, I think, many of us got off on the wrong track. Uh, naturally, we were trying to expand the technical possibilities, you know, and we, which we were trying to do. In my own case, I mean, I, especially in my, my early to mid twenties, I think I was, I was, I learned by, <laughs> by making mistakes, how many notes were too many notes to try to play. So for example, if I contrast the Scarlatti transcriptions that in the form that I started to play them when I started to do Scarlatti, you know, 45 years ago, how many, however long, well, more than that, you know, when I was a teenager, I started to do Scarlatti on the guitar, and um, there weren't any published editions for the most part that I trusted, and the sonatas I wanted to play weren't even transcribed yet. So I just I started with making transcriptions from harpsichord sources, and I, I fell in love with Johann Jakob Froberger, the wonderful Austrian organist and and keyboardist, uh, who was an important predecessor for Bach. And I, I had this wonderful recording of Gustav Leonhardt playing the, uh, particularly I remember the 20th suite, D major, the one that starts with the Almond, which is the uh, Meditation sur ma mort future, which is the Meditation on My Own Future Death by Froberger, which was a piece that just spoke to me so so deeply, and I wanted to play that and transcribe it. And I, that, that suite was probably the first major work I transcribed. And soon after that, I... Inspired by Julian Bream, I, I I went and found a Mozart divertimento for two, for three basset horns, often mm. played two clarinets and bassoon, and I transcribed that whole twenty-minute piece, and that's what I started my Tully Hall debut concert with that transcription, um, and so these pieces began to teach me uh, new things about the guitar and, and its limits, and um, I was fortunate to be able to work at Yale with uh, Ralph Kirkpatrick, the great harpsichordist and musicologist and the cataloger of the works of Scarlatti. So I had Kirkpatrick and my whole sort of Yale pedigree for the sort of more the uh, musicological, historical side of things. Um, I think one of the things I've learned and I hope I've gotten better at over the years is how to mentor young people. Not just to give the constructive criticism, which we all know that's the job of a teacher, but to also enliven in the pupil 
his or her own self-respect for the pupil to realize what he or she na does naturally well. Because if you're, if you're going to send that pupil out onto, stage, that, onto a stage, the pupil has to have self-confidence, has to know what they, he or she does right. So they, they don't have to practice so much the things they do right. They have to practice things where they have problems. And so you try, you try to, to empower the student. You empower the student by giving the student a reliable technique and the means to find solutions to technical problems that are slowing that student down. And you empower the student if you make that student aware of all the advances in musicology that have given us new information, you know, going well back into the 1500s. Our repertoire starts in the 1500s, right? So you empower the student if you teach him or her uh, things about the differences in styles. So you don't go out to play just armed only with your own instinctive approach to the music, but you know something about the composer, the, pos the composer's time, uh, the contemporaries of the composer, what came before and after the composer. Uh, you know something about the instruments of the past. What were the characteristics of those instruments? How did those instruments influence composition for them? Um, and all of this, uh, starting in the 1500s, going right up to the present time, is so important for, for students to understand. They should also have experience of working with actual living composers. So you realize the relationship between a composer and his or her notation. Uh, composers write things down on, on, on the page and... Uh, even the greatest, most brilliant, most precise composers um, can be surprised by the guitar and uh, can find things that they, that, or there may be suggestions that I might make, say, as a performer. And they may never have thought of that idea. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, they like it, you know, because it makes the instruments sing. After all these years, I know, and all these transcriptions and all these composers I work with, I know how to make the instruments sing. So, for example, yesterday I had the pleasure of uh, teaching the wonderful students uh, at the uh, USC uh, guitar program. You know, Bill Kanengosner, Scott Kenton, and, 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 and Brian Head you know, have a fantastic program there, and Pepe Romero's the artist in, in residence. So it's a wonderful set of people in preparing these young people. And what a great time I had working with those wonderfully talented students uh, and uh, seeing all the different pieces that they brought to me, almost none of which I'd ever played before. So I, I kind of had to, you know, say, read my way through this music and figure hmm. out new, new solutions on, on, on the spot. Uh, and, and all offering, you know, several or several possibilities of, of fingerings sometimes for certain passages. You know, so they, they could kind of see, you know, how I might, you know, approach, in, a, piece. approach a piece uh, that I didn't know, you know, which is almost. And then there was some pieces, of course, were played, played that, I, that I that I do play. But you know, they, they were doing stuff like Caprichos de Goya. Well, I don't play all of them. I've taught a bunch of them, but there's there's a lot of them. You know, I'm aware of the piece. I don't necessarily know it. So, I, so you know, there are, sometimes you make these subtle little changes, or you can find fingering changes that really enliven a piece, bring it to life, um, cause us to have more more pleasure. Uh, with the piece, and this was so important uh, in the case of my sort of my main mentors, which were Andres Segovia, directly and indirectly via his recordings, his editions, and of course the the, the personal uh, lessons that I had with him. Um, Segovia was a wonderful example of 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 someone who brings you know the full the f the full range of his life experiences to the music, 
but was always looking for new solutions. I remember when he was 90, I think he was in 90 at least, he came to Cologne, he played a recital, and included in the recital were pieces that he, you know, I've heard him play for the last 50, I'd heard him play for the last, you know, for years and years. Mm-hmm. And after the recital, um, I had a, a very good friend who had a guitar store, and I said, you know, let, let me have the score of the Sonatina, I'm going to write them by Mariano Torrob, I'm going to write down the changes that he just, you know, did in the concert. Um, it was a piece I knew well, so I could remember the changes uh, that Segovia had had played on stage. And and I went to see Segovia after the concert, and he was he was having a fit about the guitar. He said, "Oh, this guitar was no good in the high register. I had to put everything. I just put some things in the slow movement down an octave, and which sounded great, you know." But, wow! But so here he was, ninety, and still you know filing away uh, at these uh, pieces written for him or at transcriptions, making slight changes, which I, I would. You know, in those days, it's not like you could you could go to YouTube and you could watch the same thing fifteen times. No, you sit in the concert hall, you listen to the concert, and you go home after the concert and you remember the changes. Yeah, you know, or you or you hear it on a on a on an LP. You don't have the benefit of a video. You hear the notes that have been changed, the the changes in the harmonies, and you go home and write it down, or you write it down from the LP or whatever. So this was a different world, you know, than, than what the young people have now at their disposal. If we wanted to get manuscripts, we, we, we had things called microfilm, which you don't even know what that is, probably. That was a cumbersome, cumbersome way to get these very hard-to-read sort of photos of, of, of old manuscripts, you know. And, and you, had, you went to the library and you requested the microfilm of this, and, fi- and, and sometimes you had to wait, you know, weeks for stuff to be sent. Or if you wanted old PhD dissertations, you had to write away to some office in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and, and, and send your money in in form of a check, and, and maybe a month or two later you got back the PhD dissertation you wanted to look at, you know. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really a changed world now, and uh, to some extent for the better and to some extent for the worse. Whatever it is, we have, we have to live with it and try to, try to keep these poetic ideals alive. So I'm always thinking back to my mentors. The two most important for me were probably Segovia and Kirkpatrick, but I had wonderful support and encouragement from Oscar Gilia, who was wonderful to work with and uh, was a great mentor to, to many, to just generations of people. Very generous, fine, really great artist. And I didn't have an, that much personal contact, but I was very inspired by Alirio Diaz also, mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. Of course, I learned, I learned a lot from you know many, many other colleagues before and since but when i was a boy these were the ones i was most listening to as well as obviously bremen williams but bremen williams were, were were much more distant they were not open to young people they did not particularly help anybody um they kind of did their thing and they did their thing that. and they were famous for not wanting to talk to guitarists afterwards and not wanting to teach and and all of that and they were they were lucky enough to be born right at the point where the guitar boom happened and so they could pretty much call their own tune. Well, my generation was on the cusp of the end of that and by the time we were mid into our careers, all of us were you know, probably compelled for economic reasons to teach. But in addition, um, I think some of us really, for myself, I, I certainly developed a passion for teaching and now I absolutely love it. Um, and I, I love you know, trying to unlock the potential in young people and uh, really in the in in many cases i think i've been able to not just help musically but hopefully to you know give certain life life lessons along the way there's uh, there's dozens of people all over the world you know and, and on every continent that that i think um maybe i've been able to be a positive 
influence you know, yeah. in someone's life and make a difference. And and that's really all you can hope to do, you know, in 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 the brief span of one lifetime, because. Any creative person, any creative person is going, to, or moderately creative person is going to have more ideas than life <laughs> at, at his or her disposal to realize those ideas. I certainly feel uh, that I have you know, ideas for another 10 lifetimes and I've only got a few years left of this one. So that's, that's nothing particularly unique to me. I think most people will, will have that kind of a, of a, of a, of a feeling, you know, and and so I'm just trying to make you know the best of these these last years while I still have my health and I, I'm still you know able to travel and get around and, and 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 work. So you must travel quite a bit because if I'm right, you teach at NEC in Boston and you also teach in Salzburg. Right. That's a that's a little bit of a commute. That's a big commute. <laughs> but I, I have it kind of down to a science, and I've been doing it for so long that uh, you know I haven't pretty much worked out and and it it, it seems you know I can. Basically, it, it, it involves, you know, when I'm in residence in either place, it's periods of really intense work, exhausting work for me, many hours uh, each day, especially in Salzburg, where, where my time period is much more concentrated than it, than it is at NEC. Um, but I have a terrific level in the class in Salzburg as well, so that uh, when, I, when I get there, um, you know, they, they come with big works, well-prepared um, the NEC classes is is uh, is also a terrific level, but I have more undergraduates at NEC than I have at uh, okay. in Salzburg. So in Salzburg, I have primarily masters and doctoral, and or what they call postgraduate. Uh, you know, people that come back like for an extra year or two, you know, who are for finishing touches. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, whereas in, in NEC, I think, and, and in America in general, I, I feel like I'm in, we're in more of a building process uh, still. Um, and uh, but it's interesting. I find the NEC class less tiring to teach than the Salzburg class, and I think it's it's not just because of the jet lag or the fact that in Salzburg I'm more typically teaching and using more languages to teach in, you know, but. In NEC, I just really teach English and in English and Spanish. But in Salzburg, I teach in other languages. On top of that, and so um, that doesn't really tire me out anymore. But I think uh, the, the something about even though the American class is international and the Salzburg class is perhaps somewhat more international, still the American education system uh, has more of the idea that the student should be very participatory and the student should generate uh, a lot of his or her own education to some extent. So. Whereas in Europe, there there's a, perhaps more of a, an attitude of, of respectfully listening to the professor. You know, they would be less apt to challenge the professor. So it's there. a little more collaborative in ways. I feel that that Amer- America, the American education system, does one thing well. It does. Most people, the American students often arrive very ignorant, but they're very uh, good at learning. It's the only thing that our education system doesn't seem to have destroyed in people. So if someone is curious. Um, I find that the growth in the American class is perhaps faster than in the in the European class, perhaps you know, and maybe it's just because the European class uh, starts maybe at a, at a somewhat higher level, so there's not as much room for for, for growth. But I feel the American class, the, the growth is really ex- explosive hmm. and exciting. Interesting. So back to working with composers, what was it like commissioning the sequenza by the great Barrio? Well, I didn't really commission it. it. It happened because I had won this one competition 
at Oscar Gildias Festival in, in, in uh, Garniano in Italy on the Lago di Garda. And I had won this contest. As a result of this contest, I had won some concerts. And one of the concerts was in a little tiny town in Italy called Rovereto. Rovereto is basically uh, sort of uh, in the mountains, and it's it's um, it's it's basically where the Hemingway novel Farewell to Arms takes place. You know, so it was, it was basically the frontier between Austria and and Italy at that time. And uh, anyway, Rovereto is this little tiny town with a long artistic tradition, and Mozart is one of the places Mozart stopped when he was traveling through Italy with his father, and they have a wonderful uh, Società Filarmonica. And a wonderful man who ran it at the time I was there, named Arnaldo Volani, who uh, was impressed with my playing and who had already cultivated a, 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 an ongoing relationship with Berio. So I played there the first time, I guess, in 1981. And I had a huge success. I played there a couple of other times. And I was, I played there, I think, 85 or 86 or something. And, and again, I had this huge success. And, and, and Arnaldo Volani said, well, what would you think about our commissioning Berio to write a guitar sequence. I said, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Hmm. So in September of 1987, I went to Berio's house in, in uh, called, a little tiny town called Radicondoli, near to Siena, where Berio wrote a lot of his, his music. He has sort of a mountaintop retreat there. And um, so I met Berio, and the first piece I played for him was uh, the, the Chacona from the D minor Bach violin partita. And that sealed our friendship. And from that point on, you know, we were we were in, in steady contact. And um, I remember the premiere of the Sequenza was scheduled for April 20th, 1988, which is, do the math on it, it's 30 years ago now, right? So um, I got the full score rather short time before the, the premiere. So I basically had to learn it in about three weeks, which was a lot. <laughs> Wow, and it, it, the first in the beginning it had it didn't have any dedication, but after the premiere, which was a huge success, Barrio came up to me and he said, "Dedicato a te, it's dedicated to you." <laughs> so from that point on, I was in very close contact with him, and we we performed. You know, he would do Barrio concerts around Europe, and there would always be a group of us doing the sequenzas, and sometimes we do all the sequenzas. And then after a while, he got he said, well, "I'm going to write a shaman for you. I'm going to write an orchestral accompaniment." Uh, to the to the you know expand the sequences basically it's the same piece but there are or, or, orchestral introduction and interludes and things like that so he wrote the shaman on the on the um, commission from the uh, Beethoven festival of the city of Bonn in in uh, in uh, in Bonn Germany and was commissioned by Dennis Russell Davies that work so those were the two big pieces that Berio wrote for me and uh, I I was able to steal uh, some other music of his. I, I often played the uh, violin duets as two guitar versions. And there's one violin duet that's very, it's a beautiful setting of a Sicilian folk song. Um, it's called Aldo. Each of the violin duets have the, have the first name of some friend of Berrios. And uh, the one called Aldo is for Aldo Benici, who was a violist and was uh, you know, a great friend of Berrios. And... Um, I also I also published that actually with Universal in a version for a solo guitar. Uh, then there was another piano piece I stole of his called Brian B R I N, a, a, a short uh, on the piano simple piece, and the guitar transcription became very complex. Hmm. But the, those that's the music of Vario that I uh, 
that I've played. Of course, this sequence is what I've played most, and it's sort of a musical portrait of of my playing. And so, um, naturally, for me, it was it was it was a piece that I I worked on a lot and and found many uh, new tricks, you know, which Barrio <laughs> was very curious about, and we we would make little tiny changes. So was it? Um... But kind he, of a collaboration between the two oh, of you? Always, yes. Always, always a collaboration. He never wrote for the guitar before the sequenza. Right, that's right. What but, was... Well, he said that the, writing the guitar sequenza was as much work as writing all the other ones together. Wow. And basically, it was, it's, it's similar to, to what Bream describes of Benjamin Britten in that it, of all the guitar scores I've had written for me, the sequenza is one that required the least modification. Even the big chords and stuff he had really studied out and they were... And they became possible, you know. Um, there were a lot of little tiny things where I, I found little tricks and little ways of making little tiny insertions of an open string here or there or, or fingering peculiarities um, that Barrio liked a lot. And so he, when we came to publish the piece, he, he, you know, I went to his, uh, his office in, the, in, in Firenze and, uh, with my guitar and you know, we went over the last details. And sometimes I would... I would play something and he'd say, oh, he'd say no, play that again. And he, and he would write down what I was actually playing. Hmm. Wow. You know, re-notate certain small passages uh, in a more idiomatic way so that the stuff you know, came out really, really playable. That's so even though that's a very difficult piece, I think that everything in it's been gone over with a fine-tooth comb and it really, it all works on the instrument. It's guitaristic. Even yeah, if it's extremely, extremely difficult. Extremely tough, but guitaristic. Yeah, well that... That that definitely helps. Yeah. Um. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the first guitarist to transcribe and record the Paganini caprices. As far as I know. Yeah. yeah. What What gave you that inspiration? Because no one really did it before you. Well, you know, Williams had had played the Twenty Fourth, which was eye opening for all of us. I mean, that was that was a revolutionary act when he did that, and he played it, you know, extremely well in his in his special way. He add, he adds I should say he adds a variation that he wrote himself uh, penultimate that's not in there that's he wrote that the repeated note right one. right yeah that's not in that's Paganini never wrote that he wrote that oh, right. I totally forgot about that but it's it's or the the variation he does in arpeggios that's that's actually written as course rump 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 he does it he does it slower in tempo and uses our arpeggios so it's perfectly perfectly fine you know? um, but anyway I had heard that I had heard that. And of course, I had been doing Scarlatti sonatas for a long time. I had done all the Bach violin works by that time. And I said, well, let me, let me see about these. And first I thought, uh, you know, I started to explore them. And, and some of them were very obviously, you know, guitar inspired or parts of them were guitar inspired. And then there were things that weren't so guitar inspired. And I made the decision to, to, to endeavor to keep the original keys, even though there's perhaps not such a compelling argument for the key sequence being significant. But I thought, you know, well, I'll just start off playing them in the original keys. And um, then I got to the point that I, I realized I could play just about all of them. And then there were some holdouts, like number eight in E flat, number 23 in E flat. There are about <laughs> five of them in E flat major, right? Yikes. So that's, that's not, you don't have a lot of help from open strings. You know, you've got the G in the middle of the chord, but it doesn't really do a whole lot for you. Anyway, I learned a tremendous amount. You know, I consider that these these great musicians of the past have taught me a lot about music. I mean, certainly Bach is a great teacher for any for all of us musicians. He remains the greatest teacher of music ever. But I learned a great deal from Scarlatti. I learned a great deal from Paganini, especially about modulation on a stringed instrument. You know, I learned so much about modulations 
and about and about uh, you know fingering stuff in unusual keys and all that. I learned a tremendous amount from from Paganini. And then the next logical recording after that was to steal all of Rochberg's Caprice Variations, which is originally a huge solo violin piece for the guitar. It's much more idiomatic for the guitar. I think that's that's a work that that's much better on the guitar. But again, I made radical changes in in that. And and Rochberg, who was a stickler for his own music, he was tough to get by Rochberg. Um, he accepted it very joyously. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So that that was, I think, a, a great achievement. Those those two recordings as bookends, you know, in a certain period of my life, in the early '90s, uh, I think those were, you know, important steps. And I've been fortunate to work with a lot of other great composers. I think, you know, I, I have com I have ended up inspiring a lot of monumental big pieces for guitar, not little miniatures so much, but really big pieces like the Nicholas Maw Music of Memory, or the the Ballada Caprichos. Uh, the seven pieces for guitar and string quartet based on Lorca, or more recently the Robert Beezer's immense guitar concerto, or the Mountain Songs of Beezer, or the Kleines Requiem of Kurt Schwarzig, uh, which is about a, if you play all of it, near to near to forty minute piece for uh, solo guitar, consisting of little movements in that case. But you know these are composers uh, who none of whom play the guitar at all. Yeah. And so this was always my aspiration to get beyond the guitar cliches because even the best guitar composers get seduced in by the by the instrument, you know. And so I wanted to escape some of some of some of that, uh, you know, and and try to create a new repertoire that would really produce pieces of substance, not just these uh, you know delightful miniatures, which the guitar, of course, does so very well. Um, so you know, these are some of the important composers that I've been able to work with and who I think have, have, have written works that are, I think, of lasting value for the guitar. And I, I hope that, you know, as, as the level of virtuosity continues to rise on the instrument, I hope the young players will, will embrace more of these pieces. Also, Rochberg's American Bouquet, who doesn't get played ever. I don't know why. I recorded it twice. It's there are a bunch of Tin Pan Alley settings, including a very raucous blues. I don't know why the young kids don't play this stuff. I'm a little, I'm a little sometimes disappointed that they they will always go for some sort of gimmicky new piece with a new guitar gimmick, you know, and where the musical substance, uh, what the Germans call the Zatz, is not so not so powerful, not so not so strong as what I would like. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Um, I know Beezer's one of your friends. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah, he's also a great composer and I, a great composer. I happened to be lucky enough to meet him my freshman year. At, at Yale, but oh yeah. really? That uh, you were both students there. Yeah, that's we awesome. Just, we were, we were in, in the same class, although he was, you know, way beyond any of the rest of us musically. What was um What was the collaboration like um, working with him for the concerto? Because Beezer's works are just phenomenal, yeah, sounding pieces. But yeah. they are unlike this Barrio sequence that we're talking about. From what I gather, I haven't played them yet, and I really should get around to them. I feel very guilty that I do these kind of cliche things of. But it's not very guitaristic. The well, writing, some of the, in the or does it depend? Well, it depends. Some of some. I mean, he just wrote a, a a guitar quartet for the L.A. quartet, which they're going to be premiering soon. And the, the guitar orchestra version of it has already been done. But the L.A. guitar quartet is premiering his new. Uh, it's actually called Chacon. His new his <laughs> new work for for guitars or for guitar orchestra. Um, and that we made a tremendous effort to make it idiomatic. And there are there are. Uh, you know other other pieces that he's done. Um, he just did uh, two American songs for two guitars and string orchestra, where he set uh, Shenandoah again. Uh, he had done it once for a guitar solo. This time he sets for gu 
guitar and two guitars and strings. And he did Black as the Color of My True Love's Hair also. Um, again, for two guitars and strings. And there, I think he, he made tremendous effort to, to, you know, to really make it idiomatic. The concerto is tremendously difficult, but we, we, we worked very hard to uh, make it as idiomatic as possible. It's true, he does sometimes, you know, he, like part of the, the, the concerto goes into these, you know, sort of B-flat minor kind of thing. <laughs> you know, it's, he does use on you and starts in F-sharp minor, but the slow movement. But, uh, you know, it's, it's still more idiomatic than you might than you might think it's just you ha you have to be you have to be fast <laughs> you have to work at it yeah <laughs> you also have to, have to be fast you have to have fast fingers for something because it's written for really you know especially the last movement phrygian pick which we use just the fifth string in g and 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 sixth string in e so we had the a lot of harmonics that, between these two you know fascinating keys of sort of e major g major is it's, mm. and it's and especially the cadenza makes makes use of that yeah so um I think you know. Obviously, some some of his his works, some of the mountain songs are very hard, but some of them are, some of them are, are are you know playable by by normal people, and um, so I think I think his music actually is not as as unidiomatic as it sounds. Sometimes he did write some. You know, he tends to write uh, uh, really good counterpoint, and and sometimes some of that means some of that predicates a big hand. So, which I don't notice sometimes, you know, stuff written for me, I don't notice because I have a big extension. So for me, I might not notice stretches that for other people would be difficult. But I think there's nothing in Beezer that's not, you know, manageable by for the young virtuosos of today. They just they're just not approaching the music, which uh, I think is kind of kind of sad. Yeah. Thank you, Elliot, for being on the show, and thank you. To all you listeners for the support and tuning in this season, it's really been a blast and an honor running this show, and I'm very excited for the future. Please join me in two weeks for the season two premiere featuring Pepe Ribeiro. We'll leave things today with a bit of a longer selection than I usually do, but I thought being the end of the year, uh, it was appropriate. This is a beautiful rendition in somewhat of a harmonization of the traditional folk song Shenandoah done by Robert Beezer. It's not played too often on the guitar. I think it's, it's quite difficult, but it's a true gem of our guitar repertoire. I'm David Steinhardt, and happy holidays to all of you. We'll see you next time for the Tone Bass Classical Guitar Podcast.